It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So for those that are going to be listening to this via podcast or seeing it on video, uh, this is uh, the final day of our semester training in the summer, our first five-week semester. And it's, it's hard. It's, a, uh, it's an exciting time. And at the same time, it's, it's, it's sad. It's always sad to see this come to an end. And uh, so whether or not this is considering, considered the greatest finishing touch for a daily thunder in that, because I didn't really ponder that, that, okay, and let's set this up so that I have this crescendo moment. I mean, we're right in the beginning of World War I. It's sort of hard to have a crescendo <laughs> moment. And the beginning of World War I is, is actually really heavy and challenging. And yet, hopefully God will take this and make this just the perfect finishing touch. Uh, it is sort of hard for you guys, too, because we're just getting going, and then you leave town. And Daily Thunder, we, we, this is a 14-week series. You guys were only here for the first five weeks. Who knows what it's like just around the bend. But uh, this one is going to, it's, it's episode 15 in our series, Spiritual Lessons from World War I. And I need to turn on my clicker. And uh, it's called The Motive of the Monsters. Uh, I had, this was called The Bait of Glory right before I sent my, my notes in, and then I had this thought, you know, because I, I wanted something that really could have a little juicier sound to it than The Bait of Glory, even though The Bait of Glory really is a good one. But, you know, we're dealing with two countries in this particular message. That's Germany and France. And we've talked about Germany and France multiple times. And their 1914 version, it's like the 1914 edition of Germany and France. I think we're all convinced that there's some instabilities and there's some insecurities. There's some fears. There is a lot of uh, ire and frustration and hatred between these two countries. In 1870, so we're in 1914, 44 years earlier, they had uh, a war. Uh, and that war, the Franco-Prussian War, is going to leave a lot of bad blood. And there is going to be a lot of a cantankerous attitude between these two. And it's going to lead to, well, we could say, World War I. In other words, it's interesting because you could say, well, that Franco-Prussian War leads to World War I. The World War I is going to lead to World War II. World War II is going to lead to all sorts of things. Um, the Cold War, for instance, is a direct result of World War II, which is a direct result of World War I. A lot of what we're talking about here is directly impacting the world in which we live. And both of these countries would be deemed on the outside very virtuous. Okay, for instance, Germany is a mostly Christian, Protestant country. I mean, 80% or higher Protestant Christian. All right? I mean, you have to pat that on the back, don't you? And you have to say, well done, guys. And yet, there is a superiority that they feel and an arrogance that they have that is playing into the dramas of World War I and World War II. And I'm just going to say, you take that quality and stick it in any Christian, and it's going to create the same effect as you're going to see Germany uh, in World War I and World War II. France is very emotional, and they have a tendency to feel very deeply. And uh, they are a beautiful, very high-cultured uh, culture. That's, that was highly cultured culture, highly cultured nation. 
And I mean, consider, Paris considered the most beautiful city on earth. And so you have, and again, Germany's high culture too. In fact, that's even the term that they're going to use, Kultur. And they want their Kultur to actually spread throughout the globe because they feel it's superior. But France has been offended deeply. And they have nursed for 44 years a revenge. And so, but you want to cover those things up. You don't want to expose the fact of what your true motive is. And so you cloak your motive, and that's politics, in the right politically correct jargon so that your culture understands it. And in Germany, it's encirclement. We are being encircled. We must attack. We must save ourselves. And they have this valid reason that the, all the German people are going to nod along and say, that's a good reason why we should violate Belgium neutrality and go in and destroy France, right? And we're all, they're all nodding. Yeah, that makes total sense. Very moral. And France is being eaten up internally with hatred and with what's called revanchism, which is revenge. And this is their entire motivation. And yet they are going to claim, we don't want war. We don't want war. The only reason we're lifting our weapons in this situation is because of the violation of the neutrality of Belgium. And so they have their nice squeaky clean uh, out exterior as well, but there's something wrong on the inside. And for us, we need to allow the true motives of our soul to be brought to the surface so that like dross, they can be removed. And as Christians, believers, as we step forward, we can oftentimes say, this is for the glory of God. Meanwhile, we have an ulterior motive. And one of the things that the Spirit of God is very good at is identifying those ulterior motives and then saying, what's that? So that he can help us remove those and purify our motives and actually straighten our course so that we're going down the true narrow way as opposed to our own way the motive of the monsters. France and Germany, they have more in common than they may realize. It's hard to ever compare these two because they're very different cultures, and yet they do have a lot in common. That is, they both have an ulterior motive. They both are after something, but they don't want the world necessarily to think that they're after something. The dangerous motivations. So for France, it's revanchism or that revenge, that Elan Vital, the doctrine of the offensive or cram. They have been cultivating this, and this is hearkening back to a previous message. Uh, the French Fury, I think, is the one that brings it out the most. However, they have been cultivating an entire ideology. Their entire military system is based on what they call channeling revanchism. Uh, that just doesn't sound healthy, right? They're going to channel the way that they are going to be strong to be furious in battle, to, to freak out the Germans, basically, is the way that we would probably describe it, is that they are going to channel revenge. And when you feel this revenge, you can just sort of feel that, you know, be in the classroom where they're teaching this. It's like when you cultivate this, you fear nothing. A bullet to the head, no, that won't stop you because you are being carried by something greater. And I'm not going to doubt that. However, that something greater is not God. And in war history, this is actually a phenomenon that has existed, whether you would have called it revanchism. I think when I was doing the French Fury, I brought up uh, Alfred the Great, and the Vikings are going to 
invade uh, the, the island of Britannia, is what it was called at the time, we know it as Great Britain, and they're going to basically take over the whole island except for uh, Wessex, which is where Alfred is. And when, when they're fighting each other, the, the, the Vikings had a secret tool, and they would sort of turn to it, and the, it was the berserker gang. It, that's what it was called. They had their berserkers, and they would, in a sense, channel fury and hatred. And then they would come out, strip all their clothes off, paint themselves all up, and then just scream and run straight at the Saxon line. And the Saxon line, I mean, it's just like it freaks you out. And as a result, they would sometimes drop their weapons and, and go. And it's like, well, that's an effective thing. Yeah, but that's not godly. Whatever that is, let's circle it and say that's not healthy. And so when you see the French cultivating the same thing, you have to be a little disturbed, okay? This isn't godly. This isn't a good sign, guys. So then the Germans have their own dangerous motivations, and yet they want to cloak it in the fact that they feel like they're being encircled because they want to justify their offensive and why they're going to vi uh, violate Belgium neutrality. So their lust for power, their lust for glory, their lust for recognition. Now what's going to happen in, this, in the beginning of this uh, war, we're going to have the first encounter, you know, it's, not, it's going to be Belgium, yes, but then that's going to lead to what we call the Battle of the Frontiers. And it's a whole bunch of battles that are awakened along this whole line, all the way through Belgium, down through Alsace and Lorraine, and all coming in headed towards Paris. And so in this, it's like the first fire of the war that is going to draw true motive to the surface. The initial excuse for war, listen to how nice this sounds, guys. The French, uh, the violation of Belgian neutrality securing their nation against a hostile invader. This is what we must do. As a nation, we must rise up in arms to defend our, uh, our partner to the north, uh, Belgium. Uh, they would have said it with a French accent. I didn't do very well with my French accent on that. And yet, ironically, there's Albert in Belgium, and what's happening? They're not sending him any help. Where are they putting all their energies? Uh, in a different direction. You see, they have an ulterior motive. And even though they want to use that as their excuse internationally, they want to publicly make it look like they have a good motive in this. Actually, they don't. And I just want to put my finger on that. There is something in us, and this environment that we've been in for the last five weeks helps draw motive to the surface. And you'll find that when you arrive in an environment like this, you want to put your best foot forward. Okay, you don't really want people to know what you were like uh, before you came. You want them to think of you as something maybe better than you've ever been, right? It's just a human propensity that we have. And we want people to think of us as very spiritual when we're in an environment like this. You know, there's other environments where you won't, don't want to look spiritual, right? But in this environment, that's your tendency. Is you, you know, you're thinking this is a spiritual environment, so I want to look spiritual. So what is spiritual? And so you do things that can look more spiritual. When in actuality, your motive might not be to reveal Jesus, it might, be to be, it might be as simple as to be liked and to be found attractive or to be found impressive. And so that will come out in different ways where you're in conversation, you'll find yourself maybe enlarging things that you have done in your life so that people could be like, hmm, that's very impressive. 
And of course, if you remember some of my stories of going to missionary school, boy, did I fall into that trap. And yet that was the faithfulness of God touching me and saying, Eric, what, what exactly are you saying right now? Uh, I, don't, I don't remember it that way. Uh, it seems like you've enlarged it a bit. And God began to reveal to me that that was lying. And I, I wasn't overly comfortable with that uh, description of what it was. It was just exaggeration. Isn't that a difference? And yet God had to get down to the root. That there was an insecurity in me that could only be dealt with by finding my identity in Christ. And that as long as I'm trying to have this identity known as Eric Ludi and prop it up and have everyone like it, it's always going to be false. But when I'm finally willing to let go of this falseness and just say, I am secure in Christ. This is who I am. His, he, he is my identity now. I am a believer. And so in that process, there can be those motives. Just like when we worship and we're singing for Jesus, and yet we're thinking the whole time about the people around us and if they're noticing our voice. It's like that's a very weird contradiction. Because I thought you were singing to Jesus. And it's like technically, if you really want to bake it down, you're singing for the person right in front of you who probably is ignoring you anyways, right? And yet you're very sensitive to the world around you and what they perceive. And so you know that you should be showing that you're all about Jesus. And yet there's something else battling within. And it's a different agenda. And that different agenda needs to be tagged by the Holy Spirit. And that different agenda needs to be drawn like dross to the surface so it can be identified and removed. Because God wants to purify our motive. So what, is the, what do the Germans say is their initial excuse for worse? Very impressive. They say the mobilization of Russia. Did you see Russia just mobilized uh, against uh, Serbia? Uh, or against, I'm sorry, against Austria-Hungary. And uh, we need to do something about that, right? That was good. You have to admit, that's, that's pretty impressive. But to declare war on France is a very strange response to the mobilization of Russia. Okay, that one's hard to, to figure out. And then the threat of encirclement. Oh, you know, we've got Russia over here. We've got France over here. Uh, they're encircling us. And I'm not going to deny the fact that there is sort of a way that they could encircle. Whether or not that was their agenda is a whole different question. The need to eliminate a two-front war. If Russia is going to hit us here, then France is going to hit us from the backside. So we have to hit France. In other words, they have it all explained to themselves, and they've all gone you know, around the circle, and they're like, this, this works, doesn't it? We, we, this makes sense. The world will buy it, right? And they nod along, and everyone's like, yes. By the way, the world didn't buy it. The strange alteration of reason. So why are they going to have one reason, and they're going to shift to a different one? Well, that's because they had the other reason the entire time. Now, it's interesting in this because... The Germans have a Schlieffen plan, and, it's, it's been, and they want to crush France. That's actually their, their real motivation. It's not to crush Russia, necessarily. They just have to deal with Russia. They want to crush France. They've always looked at France as the problem. That is their great threat, and that's the two-front threat that they've had. But France has another motivation. They can use Belgium all they want, but what they really want is Alsace-Lorraine back. They have a territory that was taken from them in 1870 by the Germans, and that's what they crave. They feel that is theirs, and until they get it back, they will hold a revenge. And so Alsace is actually their true motivation. And Germany has something that I'm going to call Kani to the British, Kanae, 
I don't know how to pronounce it in a British thing. But this is an old phrase. I, I even looked up the uh, pronunciation, and it ended up being what I thought it was for the first time. That rarely ever happens, right? Kani. And so now I'll explain what that is. However, it is something that is deep within the German military system, just like Alsace is, in the, is deep in the military system of the French. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard me share uh, the story of fact, faith, and experience. So, and that's a, it's a funny, uh, humorous statement for those that are listening via podcast. This is their first podcast they've ever heard too, right? Uh, but we've, we've, we share fact, faith, and experience in here Oh, I don't know. What are we at? 20 uh, times or so? Or more? Uh, we had 23. Uh, so, uh, so there's three characters, and they're all commissioned to walk a ridgepole. And I know that doesn't sound that difficult, you know, uh, but this is impossible. I'm just going to describe it that way up front. It's impossible to do this. And yet the first character, whose name is Fact, is going to get up, and with perfect balance, he is going to walk the ridgepole. And you're thinking, Eric, I thought you said this was impossible. I did. However, this first character does the impossible. You see, we call him fact in our story here, but in Christianity, we call it truth. Jesus, okay? It is, there is one man who has come and lived an impossible life. And faith is the second character. And this is where we come in. We're in this story. And when faith gets up on that ridgepole and focuses his gaze on the fact, that which is true, then he actually gains balance and is able to walk the ridgepole. And some of you are a little concerned about my definition of impossible. You're like, wait a minute, it's impossible, but your first two characters did it. That's right. You see, everything would be amazing, and the Christian life would just showcase the impossibility of God and how he is the God of the impossible to this entire world if there were only two characters. But there's a mysterious third character named Experience, now, it, for this message, it could be really good to call it emotion, too, because emotion is going to be a very highly volatile aspect in the particular story we're giving now. But it's also very real in your life, experience, emotion. There's a lot of things throughout this semester I've likened this third party to. But this third party oftentimes is going to reach out and try and grab faith, like his shirt sleeve, and just say, hey, but what about this? And see, there's so much feeling and emotion, there's so much experience where you've taken a step forward to follow the fact in the past, but there was a disappointment. There was something that happened. And as a result, you were baited to turn from your clear gaze on the facts to consult something other than fact. Now, I'm not going to say that emotion and experience are bad in and of themselves. It's just that they are not supposed to be the lead. And when they become the lead, faith loses his balance. And when faith consults experience or emotion, he ends up losing his balance and falling off the ridgepole. And there's that nice, juicy uh, manure pile down there at the bottom of the barn that he plops into afresh. And many of us have spent our life in that manure pile, staring up at this lofty thing known as walking the ridgepole, which, you know, we're of course called to, thou shalt walk the ridgepole. And we're like, yeah, right, as if anyone can really do that. And that's because we've spent our days in an age and a generation which has allowed experience and emotion to be the chief ruler in our doctrinal thinking. When in actuality, throughout Christian history, that which rules our thinking and our living 
is the fact. It's that which is without exaggeration, that which is without hyperbole, that which is true. And that which is true is also a man. And that which, who I'm calling a man, is also God Almighty. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he has set a pace. He has revealed himself to us so that we could put our faith in him. And when we do, it's amazing, but we can actually see our experience and our emotion walk the ridgepole. But to do that, we have to ignore them. And we can't allow them to dictate to us. We can't be distracted when they, ta- when they yank on our shirt sleeve. We have to follow the fact, even if they're howling behind us, and say, but I believe what God has revealed. And when we do that, it's amazing, but your emotions begin to gain balance, and they begin to fall in alignment with faith, who is following fact. Your experience begins to match that which is fact, because you are no longer allowing your experience to lead you. Emotion and experience were never meant to be at the helm. And so in all of our lives, it's amazing. The reason I share this story so often in a semester, because the first time I share it, everyone goes, hmm, very interesting. And then as we begin to progress and we get to, uh, you know, iteration 22 of fact, faith, and experience, what you begin to realize is that, oh, that's me. (laughs) Wait a minute, I'm doing that here. There's so many pockets of our life where we are following something other than the truth. And what we have in this story in World War I is we have two nations that are actually following something other than truth. And we can easily do the same. We ha- they both have deep set experience with one another. And they know each other. You know, the Germans know the French and they have them totally stereotyped. And the French know the Germans and they have them stereotyped too. And it's a deep thing. It is a feud between these two. And that experience is controlling them. But not just that, but their emotions that are right there connected to that experience are controlling them. This is a very emotional war. This is not just a whole bunch of wise, smart people that are sitting down going, what would be the best thing to do for our country? This is a whole bunch of people that have a feud, that have anger, that have pride, that have arrogance, that have insecurity. I mean, it's just a fascinating study. In regards to that, it's like a whole bunch of humans. And so are we. And we have similar vulnerabilities. Praise God, we're not in a situation where our vulnerability is going to cause World War I. But we need to recognize the gravity that is associated with our individual handling of these matters. So as fact, faith, and experience, as translated into 1914 French, fact, faith, and revanchism. You see, there is something that is going to be grabbing at the shirt sleeve of France. And instead of facts, instead of truth, they are going to deviate and fall off the barn roof. Okay, that's going to be the very, that's a great way of describing the very beginning of World War I for the French. So as translated into 1914 German, fact, faith, and kni. There is something that is going to disturb the Germans, that is going to bait them off course, so instead of following through on fact, or what is true, they are going to be baited with an emotion, an emotional desire, which I will explain. So let's first start with France. 1914 France, this is what they called it, Mystique des Alsace. It is the magnetism of Alsace that is drawing this people. 
And so I gave you a lot of quotes during the French Fury that this is literally intoxicating to them. That is our territory. That is our territory. And of course, when you don't have something, it becomes more beautiful to you, too. It is the most beautiful part of France. That belongs to us, 44 years of stewing over this. And it is going to set them up for World War I because they're being baited by something. And so World War I starts, and they have a job, and that's to defend the neutrality of Belgium. Instead, what do they do? They take all of their energies and they aim them straight at Alsace. Now, they have a justification for this. Joseph Joffre, who is the you know, commander-in-chief of the French uh, military, is going to say, you know, because people are saying, I think Germany's coming in like a sledgehammer to the north. All the better, says uh, Joffre with a French accent. And he says, we will hit them where they're weak. And of course, where they're weak just happens to be what he wants. He wants the middle. He wants Alsace-Lorraine. So Plan 17 is what it's called. And it really doesn't include Belgium, okay? It's just Plan 17. It's like, what's Plan 17? It's all hidden. No one knows what it is. At the very end, they're going to reveal what it is. We're going to hit them in the middle. Where's the middle? Alsace-Lorraine. Hmm, I wonder why they're hitting them there. Because that's their weak spot. They're going to try and encircle us like Cani. We're going to hit them in the middle. You see both of them falling for this. They both know each other really well. So what is... Plan 17. Let's just get down to brass tacks. Let's get a different name for it. It's time to get back Alsace. That's what Plan 17 is. You can cover things over by calling it Plan 17 all day long, but let's get down to what it really is. So here's another description. Take it to the Germans. Defense is for cowards. Hit them where they are thin. Don't consider for a moment that they are swinging a sledgehammer out of the north. We mustn't respond to German movements. Let them respond to ours. So the Germans, meanwhile, are, have the Schlieffen plan coming from the north. And jo Joffre's entire mentality, when everyone's like, I think it's a large force, I think it's a large force, we don't have any defense against it, we're going to hit them here. Because if they're bringing that many troops up there, they're going to be thin here. And if we break through here, we go to Berlin, war over. Yeah, but if, if they come down here, they get Paris, war over. Are, are we sure we're thinking this through? Right? Basically, here's what it is. We're getting back Alsace, is really what, what they're saying. We're getting this back, even if we lose our country in the process. That sounds like our life at times, doesn't it? The Battle of the Frontiers, August 20th through 24th, 1914. This is four days in French history that is going to wipe out a good portion of their young men. Four days. Uh, so here's a, a quote uh, from Barbara Tuckman in The Guns of August. It is a glorious and awful thought, wrote Henry Wilson in his diary on August 21st, that before the week is over, the greatest action the world has ever heard of will have been fought. As he wrote, the action had already begun. From August 20 to 24, the whole of the Western Front blazed with battle. In reality, four battles known to history collectively as the Battle of the Frontiers. So we have our map, and we're going to zoom in on France. And I'm going to sort of show you at least the layout of where the Battle of the Frontiers is. So you have Germany coming in, sweeping through Belgium, and then creating a line all the way around through Alsace-Lorraine. And then the French are going to want to hit them right in the middle. And, of course, that's a huge risk. Everything about this is a risk. It's a risk for the Germans because they're putting so much weight to the north. It's a risk for the, the French because they're going to try and break through the middle uh, of the German line. The inability of the French command to believe the reports. When you are held by emotion, facts seem to lack a landing place in the soul. So 
over and over again, in fact, it's well documented that the French military decision makers are going to hear about this massive swing from the north, which you guys already know about, the Schlieffen plan. And yet they are going to constantly, every time they hear about it, it's like, it's not as big as you think. It's exaggerated. It's exaggerated. Now, there's about 1.2 million soldiers coming through Belgium. They are thinking, you know, maybe, you know, 200, 300,000. And they have miscalculated the German military strength. And the reason is, is because France will not use its reservists. And they're presuming that the Germans are the same. However, the Germans are using their reservists, which means they have swelled massively bigger than the anticipation for the French. So the French think there's going to be a thin spot here if they're putting even this much here, when in actuality, there's no thin spot. So the French are setting themselves up for absolute disaster. But the Germans are risking everything by putting it all to the north. But if they can make it happen, uh, it's something very special for the Germans. But over and over, the report is going to come. It's, it's not eight divisions to the north, sir. It's 30. No, no. They don't have that much strength up there. There is no way they would do that. No. They deny what is happening every time they hear it. It's like the truth is out in front of you, and yet you're taking something different and reasoning from it. And as a result, they are going to find themselves in the most desperate of situations in these four days. The principle of denial, okay? I mean, you can ask yourself how well that's worked for you when you deny the truth and say, no, no, that doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit conviction, you say, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. You see, it ha there has to be a process that God walks us through. Any agenda of our soul that we press forward with blind devotion against the fact must be proven fraudulent in the end. The death of the French offensive. So they even call it the doctrine of the offensive. In fact, they have it, it's called the cult of the offensive in France. It just doesn't sound healthy, does it? This is what they believe. This is like, hey, if you're going to join the military, you join the cult of the offensive. What does the cult of the offensive say? Defensive working and defensive preparations are for cowards. It is the heresy of our military system. And so as a result, when they're going to battle, they're not creating defensive measures because they're not a defensive machine, they're an offensive machine. And they're gonna destroy Germany, they're gonna scare them off the field, remember like the berserkers? They're gonna come running at them like wild men and the Germans are gonna freak out and go the opposite direction. We've got this figured out. However, it's going to turn very differently. And they don't have any defense measures set up. So when suddenly they need defense, they don't have it. So we're gonna call this the death of the French offensive. So Barbara Tuckman says it this way. Although the French did not yet know it, the slaughter at Morang snuffed out the bright flame of the doctrine of the offensive. It died on a field in Lorraine, where at the end of the day, nothing was visible but corpses strewn in rows and sprawled in the awkward attitudes of sudden death, as if the place had been swept by a malignant hurricane. It was one of those lessons the survivor realized afterward by which God teaches the law to kings. The power of the defense that was to transform the initial war of movement into a four-year war of position and eat up a generation of European lives revealed itself at Meringue. So for the French, they are going to run into the buzzsaw that their revanchism actually doesn't work. And they are going to be obliterated. Okay, that's probably a pretty good way of describing it. Uh, they are gonna lose more men in a four-day period 
than any uh, American loss in anything that I can remember. In other words, this is like just four days, and they're going to lose like the entire amount that we might lose in an entire war uh, as the Americans. And this is four days. Why? Because they have uh, red trousers, red kepis, blue jackets, and they're, you know, the, the officers are holding their white glove up in the air saying, here we are, we do not fear you, and they're blown away. They don't have metal caps yet. This is like the days of machine gun fire and artillery shells. They're back in 1830. This is 1914. This is modern warfare, but who knew that it was going to be modern warfare? Modern warfare is just now existing, and yet their doctrine has to be proven fraudulent. Their motive has to be brought to the surface. What are you guys really doing? Why did you not stand with Belgium like you said you were? Uh, why did you just lose 140,000 men in, the, in Alsace and Lorraine? What does that have to do with it when the army is, military is coming down here? Germany's swinging north and you're spending all our men over here. What, what are you thinking? Uh, what kind of excuse do you have? Because to defend against the sledgehammer would be a defensive maneuver. They can't be defensive. So what do they do? They go on the offensive, and they spend all their lives. 1914, Germany. The bait of the goat. Now, I, this term goat, G-O-A-T, is a new one, okay? For those of you that have grown up with it, greatest of all time, to me, it's one of the most unattractive ways to describe a great athlete, right? He's the goat. It's just like, I remember the first time I heard that, it's like, he's the goat? Excuse me? You want to correct that? That's a, that's a great quarterback there. And, but the greatest of all time is someone coined that. I don't know who, but they should be guilty as charged because that is a very ugly term. Uh, and however, there is this bait that exists throughout history. Most of us have never competed to be the greatest of all time. I mean, I, I don't want to say that there isn't someone in here that maybe could, okay, whether it's in an Olympic event or a sport of some kind, but it's a very rare thing for a human to have the privilege of even the opportunity to go after it. And Germany is in a position right here. In fact, most people would argue and say in military history that the, one of the greatest armies of their age when it went off to battle would be Germany in 1914. It was the most well-trained, most well-oiled. These guys are very impressive, okay? And I'm not going to take that from them. However, they're also, their motive is so off that you can't cheer for them. I mean, they're very impressive. I've had people tell me that, you know, Germany is their favorite uh, nation and the favorite military machine in World War I. And I get why, because it is very impressive to look at. However, I cannot cheer it on. No matter what I do, because their motive is just distorted all over the place. There's no defense in it. I can cheer on a defensive measure in battle, but I have a real difficult time when someone is the aggressor and destroying people. I mean, I just can't say yay on the sideline to that. But Germany has the opportunity here to be considered the greatest of all time. And when you're in military science, and military science is at its peak right now in 1914. And it's like they, have, they now have access to all the histories and they've been studying, they've turned it into this massive uh, knowledge base. And so that you can, you can study every war, you can study all the military movements, all the different tactics, and they are experts at it, and the Germans more than any. And they know that the greatest military movement in all of history was Hannibal's movement against the Romans in the Battle of Cannae. And they have an opportunity in World War I that is going to appear 
to outdo that. And I tell you what, it is a bait right in front of them. They not only could do the Schlieffen plan and be very impressive, but Moltke's in a situation where he could be immortalized. He could actually go beyond just the Schlieffen plan, which doesn't have his name. It's not Moltke plan. It's the Schlieffen plan. But if he did this, he could actually be Moltke the Great. You know, you can just sort of see this in a movie sense. You know, the bait is like the demons whispering in his ear. So it's so close, I can almost taste it. That's exactly what's going to happen to the Germans here. So it probably would help you to understand Hannibal and the Battle of Cannae. Not that I'm going to go into it at any great level. August 2nd, 216 BC. Long time ago, right? And there's a picture of it, just in case you're wondering what it looked like, right? Of course, that doesn't help us at all. <laughs> so here's what it is. It's the fabled double encirclement of the Romans. The worst defeat the Roman Empire ever suffered, recognized by all war experts throughout history to be the greatest tactical feat in military history. And so it's a bait. Cani, we want to outdo Cani. It's like a world record sitting in front of you and you're a, you know, a, a shot putter or something, a long jumper, and it's like you just need one more inch and you could be the greatest of all time. That's what this is for the Germans. So... Theodore Dodge says it this way, the whole battle from the Carthaginian standpoint is a consummate piece of art, having no superior, few equals, examples in the history of war. And then Will Durant says, it was a supreme example of generalship, speaking of Cany and, and Hannibal's victory, never bettered in history, and it set the lines of military tactics for 2,000 years. Okay, so now most of us probably are not in a position where we care at all about Hannibal and Cany. That's because we're not military scientists. We're not generals. However, you're a general. You know how history treats war. It studies it in depth. And so they're seeing how history has captured and enunciated and immortalized and you know, put you know, statues of people. And I mean, this is like, this is your opportunity to step into that. And even soldiers going off to battle are thinking that. They're thinking of the glory that is in front of them. And if they perform well, they could be immortalized. It's a very interesting bait that lays before us as humans. And it's definitely in this story. So this story involves a guy named Prince Ruprecht, who's the crown prince of Bavaria. So he is set to be the next king of Bavaria, and this is in the German Empire. And he is going to be a general and he's going to be down in Lorraine, so down in the, the bottom side of that line of Germans. And his job, if you remember, his job uh, down in that sector is to act like he's being defeated and to pull back. It's called the sack. Do you guys remember that? They, the Germans knew that the French were going to hit them right there because they knew they're not going to fall for all this bluster about defending Belgium. They know exactly what the, what the French are after. So they're going to pull back and they're going to create what's called the sack. And they're going to try and encircle the French in that situation. However, as they're pulling back, Prince Ruprecht is going to recognize, first of all, it's, it's nearly impossible because there's no glory in pulling back and acting like you're losing. So this is really hard for Prince Ruprecht. And he's a battle hard, I mean, he's a, he's a guy that you want leading your troops. And yet he wants to attack. And yet his job isn't to attack. And so he makes the plea basically this. The French are vulnerable, sir. Let me attack them, please. And so Moltke has 
a, ch a challenge here. Because Ruprecht, according to what he has seen, is the French can be broken through. That they are extremely overconfident right now, and they are not disciplined in their ranks, and they're just, they have no defense systems, right? That's, that's true. They have no defense systems. And so if we were to turn on them and hit them in full strength, which they don't think we have, we could actually break through their lines. Now, imagine if you broke through the lines on the south and the north. What would that mean? Now, try and think like a military general if you're Moltke. That's a double encirclement. That, that's Kani. That's Kani. We have Kani sitting in front of us. However, Schlieffen's entire model was to take all your forces, as much as you can spare, and bring them from the north and make this a quick victory. And yet Moltke can't help himself. And he's going to take divisions from the north, and he's going to send them to the Russian east because they're already attacking over there, and then he's going to take them down to, uh, to join Ruprecht. He has it in view. He has the double encirclement, the Kani. You see, there's fact, faith, and Kani. And in this situation, he is going to turn and listen to the bait of Kani. Now, I'm really struggling not to give spoilers away in what's going to happen here. The bait is too strong for Moltke. Forsake the sack and go on the attack. This needs to be turned into a song, guys. After all, Kani is within his grasp. So what I did is I showed you the, what's called the pincer movement on the side. It's, it's like, you know, like a, a crab is like... And what they're trying to do is this. They're trying to create the double encirclement around France. And it looks like it's very possible. I'm going to just agree. It's like that is possible. But why are you doing it? Because if you just kept to your plan, you would get Paris. And I, like I said, it's hard for me not to give a spoiler away. But the Germans are going to sabotage their own plan. And they are going to experience the strangest, most mystifying defeats that you could even dream of in World War I at the most critical moment when they should have won the whole thing. World War I would have been done. And we're talking days from now. And yet the Germans are going to make a choice that is going to, in a sense, shoot themselves in the foot. And you were like, why would they do that? If you had Kani in front of you and you had the opportunity to do that, wouldn't you do it too? And you're like, I don't even know what Kani is. Of course I wouldn't do it. <laughs> you see, it's not your emotion. It's not your experience. But all of us have baits like that. We have different things in our life that will steer us away from the clear calling that God has given us. And we can listen to these things like, all says, all says, Kani, Kani. And that's what the Spirit of God has to touch. You know, if there's one thing that's going to come out of the very beginning of World War I, is it's going to expose to the Germans that they jumped on top of an opportunity that was not actually a wise opportunity, but immortality is very attractive. To actually be able to say that we did this is something the German Empire almost cannot keep themselves from. And as a result, I know I sort of slipped out a spoiler there. I, it's terrible. True motivations are always exposed when the bait shows up. In our lives, when that temptation comes, it reveals what's still there. 
Okay, God doesn't bring temptation, but he sure does use it. And what he can use in our life is the fact that there is still something there that can be attracted, something there that can still be pulled and drawn. What we desire is for there to be a death to this side of us that yearns for self-glory, that yearns for self-comfort, that yearns for security in our life, that yearns for fame and renown, that yearns for riches. You see, we all know that those things can't supply what only God can supply. And yet, there is the vulnerability that we have to turn. And when God's saying, follow me this way, but God, what about this? The enemy's very good at what he does. And he'll stick an all-sace right in front of us. He'll stick a knee right in front of us to bait us off of the clear path. And so, some of us know what I mean when I say, and when you turn, it never leads to something good. It's not going to lead to something good for the French or the Germans in this. That's what's interesting. It's like, who wins this? Well, no one's going to win in the beginning, and that's part of the disaster of World War I. It's, it's going to turn into four years of just grinding up lives. And it starts right here. It's like God has to lift these motives to the surface, and these nations are going to have to stare themselves in the mirror and say, what was our real motivation? So Hebrews 4.12 is going to be talking about the Word of God, which is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But I'm going to shrink that down to just the first statement and the last statement. The Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when you pursue the Word of God, when you spend time in the Word of God, have you ever noticed that it, it does do exactly that? It brings up motive. It draws out intent. You see, you want that drawn out before you get into the battlefield. Before you launch forward in Plan 17, wouldn't it be nice to know? God's like saying, uh, Eric, your absorption, your idolatry over regaining Alsace actually needs to go. Wouldn't that be nice for the French if they could have died to that ahead of time? And how about for Moltke and the Germans? That, you know what, your, your passion to be immortalized and to be considered the greatest actually can really hinder you uh, in your forward movement. Would you be willing to lay that down? Of course, while he's speaking to the Germans, we might want him to add a few more things, too, so that they don't go to the war in the first place. The proving of Plan 17. God must test it in fire to see if it is genuine. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our motive is going to be proven in the fire. And when we face difficulties, when we face trials, it can authenticate our faith. But it can also show us that there was something that was an imposter in our soul that was trying to claim a space that belongs to Jesus Christ. I, I think you're all like me in the sense that you don't want to be a fake Christian. You don't want to say, oh, I love Jesus, this is all about Jesus, and then have it be all about you. I think we're all probably in this room on the same page there, but the vulnerability to us saying one thing with our mouth and doing another thing with our life is very real, which is why we need the Word of God to inspect us, and we need it to search us and try us and know us, so that if there is something, a, a wicked way in us, if there is an alsace or a knee bait within us, 
If the Spirit of God could address that now, instead of when we're in the middle of conflict. So Barbara Tuckman says this, France was committed to Plan 17 as her only design for decisive victory. And Plan 17 demanded the offensive. Now and no later, the only alternative would have been to change at once to defense of the frontiers. In terms of the training, the planning, the thinking, the spirit of the French military organism, this was unthinkable. Derelict among the bodies lay the fragments of Plan 17 and bright broken bits of the French field regulations, which said, the French army henceforth knows no law but the offensive. The offensive alone leads to positive results. So I love how Barbara Tuckman says, derelict among the bodies lay the fragments of Plan 17. This didn't work, guys, and that's what God has to do in our life, too, to say, sort of laying amongst the rubble heap of our bad decisions is evidence that when you live for self, it destroys you. This will always be proven. The facts will still prove true, and it will prove true in our experience. And even if that is experience that shows we chose self-glory over God-glory, and in the rubble heap, that's field manual of self will lie, exposed as fraudulent. Barbara Tuckman says this, during the Battle of the Frontiers, 70 French divisions, or about 1.25 million men, were in combat at different times and places over a period of four days. French casualties during those four days amounted to more than 140,000, or twice the number of the whole British expeditionary force in France at the time. Great Britain has 70,000 men soldiers available. France lost double that amount in the first four days of the Battle of Frontiers. I mean, that is like so jarring and so shocking that none of us even have a grid. And France did not have a grid. They used to fight battles, you know, with Napoleon. They could lose 30,000, and that was like a shocking number. 140,000 are going to lie dead. And you could say, why? Well, because of their entire mentality that was fraudulent because of the bait of Alsace, which took them away from a clear plan that would do what was right in the situation to do what they must have, and it destroyed them. The proving of Germans' desire for military immortality. So I already talked with you about the, the proving of Plan 17, but I can't really go into the proving of what's going to happen to the Germans yet. I, I hinted, and I even feel bad about that, because, you know, part of the fun of a story is you give foreshadow, but you don't give away uh, conclusions, right? And even though you could figure out what's going to happen just by looking in a history book, it is rather profound what is going to take place. And that Germany's yearning for the double encirclement and immortality is literally going to be their downfall. And it's inexplicable, guys. It's, it's so hard to even describe because everyone in the French side and the and the British side knew that they were done for. They were destroyed. I mean, it's a really dark day. And yet the Germans themselves, because of this desire and this yearning, are going to harm their own attempts to win this war. I, 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 again, that's way too much. I've given way too much away. So Will Irwin, this is, this is, this is sort of my answer to what's gonna happen with the Germans, okay? With their motives, when they're being proven, this Protestant nation full of Christians, which, by the way, in World War II with, with Hitler, it's the same thing. It's a whole bunch of Protestant Christians 
that are going to allow for Hitler to take over their country and lead them into uh, a war which is so horrifying. And so it just it should show us all right there that the fact that you give a label of Christian does not mean the content of your life is truly in alignment with the king. But this is the results of the Germans. This is Will Irwin, a British soldier. He said, over all lay a smell, which I have never heard mentioned in any book on war, the smell of half a million unbathed men. It lay for days over every town through which the German passed. <laughs> I was like, that's the last thing I want to have said about my life passing through this earth, right? In other words, are you giving off the fragrance of heaven or that? And there is something very ugly about what is taking place in this war. And it is a motive issue. There is a cloaking of reality of what is taking place inside of these nations. And that's why when we go into and we study William, we begin to recognize this isn't healthy, guys. And when we study the French fury and we, were, we study their revanches and we're like, this isn't healthy. This isn't gonna lead to good things. And that's right. It leads to battle, it leads to killing, it leads to disaster. So what do we do with it? We see ourselves reflected in and through this rather ugly portrait, and to the degree that God needs to touch us, we say, yes, Lord. If there is a motive in me that is off, if there is pride in me, I must have it dealt with. If there is an unforgiveness, a root of bitterness in me, it must be addressed. Because if it's not addressed, it must be proven for it to be fraudulent and to be a fraudulent motivator for your life. And God will bring that to the surface through fire. And so our desire is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for that. You need not take it any further, Lord. My answer is yes. I am ready to agree with you, and I want my motive to be purified. Father, I ask that you would search us and that you would try us. And wherever there is any way in us that is Alsace or Kni-driven, I pray that you would put your finger upon it and that you would illuminate our understanding and that you would show us the step forward of repentance and making it right. Lord Jesus, we desire to shine like lights in this earth and to give off the fragrance of our King. So Lord, whatever is necessary for that end result, we say, yes, Lord, we desire it. Come and accomplish it in us. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.